Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. T.H. Breen. Dr. Breen received his PhD from Yale University in 1968. He is currently the director of the Chabraja Center for Historical Studies and History Department Chair at Northwestern University. Today, he is here to discuss his newest book, George Washington's Journey, The President Forges a New Nation. We'll hear tales from Washington's journey to all 13 states during his first term as president, and how these travels weren't only for pleasure, but served a deeper and ambitious political purpose. And now, Drs. Breen and Bradburn. Okay, this is Doug Bradburn at the Washington Library at Mount Vernon. I'm here in my office with Timothy Breen, T.H. Breen, the brilliant historian of early America. Anybody who knows anything about early American history uh, should know the name of T.H. Breen. Uh, that's an interesting question there. Why T.H. and not Timothy Breen on the spine of so many, so many, many of those books and articles that uh, some of us were forced to read in graduate school and some of us came to delight to read as practicing historians. But we all know T.H. Breen as uh, a, an author who spanned from uh, colonial New England to colonial Virginia to the revolution. And now I think, I think the first major work in a post-revolutionary moment uh, is this wonderful new book, George Washington's Journey, The President Forges a New Nation, or a, a nation, a new nation. Uh, so what, what about that first question of why TH rather than Timothy or Tim Brain on the on the spine? Well, you're the you may be the first to ask and I'm a little embarrassed. Um, my name is Timothy Breen and I come from no good Scots-Irish family in County Tyrone and uh, uh, I was invited at the time I was in graduate school uh, studied with Edmund Morgan, one of the great scholars of uh, the previous generation. And uh, I went to uh, uh, Oxford to do research, and all the dons in the college seemed to have an initials if you looked at them, the British writers, mm -hmm. yeah. JC or TD or whatever. That's right. I, yeah. I figured as a young scholar, well, that must be, the, that must be what you know, proper scholars do. So uh, I uh, published my dissertation, which was called The Character of a Good Ruler, uh, as T.H. Breen, and once you register uh, your name, that's it. I yeah. mean, if you get divorced or you, you, you change your name, I'm sorry, you, you, your books are always going to be fancy. Yeah. So I had a radio interview the other day um, in, in the South, and uh, mm -hmm. the man thought that, well, this is what su a lot of Southerners do, you know, mm -hmm. uh, well, JC's got a new truck, that kind of thing. <laughs> so all through the union, uh, interview, uh, you say, well, TH, what do you think of Washington? <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, that, I, that's, the, that's interesting you say that, because that would have been my guess, is that uh, a lot of British authors, the greats, mm -hmm. you know, used initials in their yeah. 
in their in their in their as historians. That's yeah. exactly what J J H Eliot was yeah. one of my of course, contacts. And of so course, on. yeah. Um, I, I think J H Plum too. J H right? Plum. J H. J H is the thing. That's, so. yeah, well, you've had the H. That's what you yeah, needed to yeah. get. All right. So uh, you mentioned you you studied with Morgan. Um, uh, Edmund Morgan, I think, has now passed about a year. Uh, yeah, oh, at least that, yeah. Mm -hmm. and one of the greats, of course. And uh, you started out, your uh, your dissertation was on 17th century New England, which is one of the places he, you know, he made a huge name for himself. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I want to get back to that, but particularly as we talk about the character of a good ruler, which may or may not apply to George Washington mm -hmm. as we as we look at him. But... Um, Am I right in thinking this is the the first major work you've done, the sort of post-revolutionary moment? Yeah, this is certainly the first um, book. I mean, you have uh, articles, of yeah, course. Articles, yeah. right. Um, yeah. In fact, I even have articles on 20th century. Um, mm. But, um, yeah, this is the first book. And it was it, it's very appropriate that we're at Mount Vernon because um, I was uh, fiddling around with this subject of the journey in a kind of in an inchoate way. I didn't know where the material was going to lead. I, mm -hmm. I felt that I had had something going, but uh, then I was invited to give a series of lectures here, and uh, I guess the old fear factor and deadlines and other things uh, uh, really got me to mm -hmm. uh, organize the material, and uh, the lectures were given, I think, uh, two years ago. Yeah, uh, that's right, 2013. Yeah, so, yeah. right, there you go. And um, uh, I found the audience here very responsive. They liked the material, um, and uh, that just encouraged me to go forward. So I, in a sense, I owe Mount Vernon at least the uh, incentive uh, mm -hmm. to, to, to get the book together. But uh, since those lectures, I've had to uh, refine not the research so much, but the analysis. I wanted the book, uh, as I wanted all my books, uh, not just simply to be a rehash of what we all know, there's there's a number of scholars that will go un, unmentioned, who um, are, are great storytellers. They're great stylists. They, mm. they, their books are, um, I might say, in a kind of a jealous uh, frame, <laughs> really good sellers. Very popular. But they yes. don't add anything to uh, our interpretive base of mm. what, what we think about the revolution, what we think about Washington in this case. And so I wanted to have my cake and eat it too, and that is. I wanted a book that real scholars would say, look, Green has done a lot of research here. Mm -hmm. Maybe his argument is terrible, but mm -hmm. boy, he's done old fashioned. We, are, we recognize yeah. the scholarly work. But I also wanted to make it readable and accessible. Mm -hmm. I, wa I wanted to have scholarship that communicated to the, the public because I personally feel that academic historians in the 21st century have deserted foolishly mm. uh, the pu the public yeah. and so we've we've left an open field for amateurs or peer people that don't do research while yeah. we indulge in um, studies that frankly don't have a, a large uh, purchase on the public mind it's certainly not something we ever could have accused Edmund Morgan of doing abandoning the public he always wrote you know to be accessible in yeah. a certain way despite being deeply scholarly and in some cases Transforming the field, right. uh, we, we, trained historians, academic historians, when teaching colleges, uh, yeah, I mean, it, you have in many ways uh, stepped aside for journalists and mm -hmm. for others to sort of right. t come in and tell great stories, right? Um, and that's that's wonderful that you you uh, are taking on the challenge. I do wonder, 
So thinking about your your most recent book before this, the book on insurgents, American insurgents. Now that is that's clearly a book in which you you didn't want to look at the traditional founders, you know, the mm. people that the that uh, you know we think of the founding fathers, and that you wanted to focus on regular folks in the in the right. revolution in Massachusetts. What what brought you to um, the foundingest father, George Washington, then as a yeah. as a sort of comeback from that book, a sort of a well, surprise, I guess. In, in a sense, looking back at my my own work, in a sense, perhaps this is presumptuous, but there really are a quartet of books: uh, Tobacco Culture, Marketplace of Revolution, American Insurgents, and now Washington's uh, Journey, mm. and uh, all of them are more or less focused on a problem that even goes back to the character of the good ruler. And that is, I'm interested in um, how power is communicated uh, to a, a constituency. The base changes, sometimes it's large, sometimes it's inclusive, but nevertheless, um, there's a conversation about uh, the use of power, mm. and when it goes uh, wrong, then you raise questions about mobilization. Mm. How does the public communicate its um, uh, distress about mm. uh, the situation they find? So that mm. at first, tobacco culture uh, seemed like it was an experimental book, uh, and I was taken then by what I thought and what I, I fear is still the dominant I ideology of um, Bayland, of, of uh, Professor Bayland and Gordon Wood, that said it was a, a Republican moment. There was this uh, ideology that informed the entire coming of the revolution and was a plausible and indeed the way they put it, a persuasive case. And so I, I looked at Virginia planters and I, I, I asked what, how their world worked. I mean, what, and uh, I tried to fit, as it turned out, I think a round hole in a square Peg and is, is tried to fit this Republican ideology into the world of these producers of a crop that they sold in a European market. And the result of tobacco culture was that I became deeply skeptical mm. of the whole Republican uh, moment. I, th I, huh. I think it was uh, um, uh, it, it perhaps uh, sold among certain uh, scholars of a uh, of a, a conservative bent, it mm. was. Uh, it made our revolution seem nice and clean and plausible and mm. rational and so on. But uh, it did not uh, respond to my my interest in in ordinary people. Mm. Now I'm not trying to. This is my uh, raise the people in some Marxist way or to find obscure people, the, 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 the one Native American that right. led a riot right. or something. Those things happen, but they don't lead to entire national yeah. revolutions. And so in Marketplace of Revolution, I tried to find and explore the mechanisms through a consumer marketplace yeah. in which people uh, separated by large distances, Charleston, Philadelphia, and Boston, yeah. might communicate their unrest and find a, pl a, a practical way to resist the abuse of power. Yeah, the marketplace of revolution. It strikes me that book is the first. The first half, particularly, of that book is a masterwork uh, in uh, the way you can use m different kinds of sources, mm -hmm. um, different sorts of methodologies to try to get at that elusive, widely mm -hmm. held experience of everybody. You know, right. of uh, no one particular stratum of people here or there, but but consumption on a broad. 
broad scale in which you're using archaeology and you're using mm -hmm. interpretation of print culture and you're using uh, you know account books and mm -hmm. I mean all the different desideronum of the past to, mm -hmm. to fill in that story really a brilliant way to try to well because you know everybody was reading the particular pamphlet right. literature right well it's the foundation of the right. ideological sort of interpretation and so I mean I suppose um, the takeaway message of, of the book was that the idea of using uh, a marketplace using the consumer economy as a vehicle for political resistance mm. uh, was an American invention. Mm. I mean, we, we talk about a balanced constitution right, and yeah. all the glories of being a political intellectualized, but the people were, uh, were finding new ways to mm. protest what they thought was the abuse yeah. of power. And the boy, word boycott obviously is a, an anachronism that comes from Irish history in the 19th century, but in fact, there's no, you have to be a historical, there's no other word. <laughs> they said, you know, not, Non-consumption or non-intercourse or something doesn't uh, really have much salience, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. Well, and it was so. I mean, it must have been a very powerful thing because it would go on to impact American policy well into the 19th century. This notion that you can you can affect political change through controlling consumption and access right. to goods. I mean, Jefferson's embargo. You think of you know these things that are so so big in the minds of the founding era that right. they they believe they can be levers of political influence. And then I moved on in um, American Insurgents, American Patriots, to the question of uh, the mechanics, the actual uh, structure mm -hmm. of, of protest. Yeah. Again, again, uh, for people that don't uh, read American historiography, um, the dominant approach is that uh, a bundle of ideas was so powerful, so motivating that people uh, simply responded to uh, words like uh, virtue and liberty and whatnot, mm. and and they they probably did hold those in high regard. But um, in fact, all revolutions. And one of my uh, peeves about the literature of the American Revolution is that it is so um, uh, relentlessly non-comparative, mm. as if mm. uh, you know it's an except exceptional revolution, the clean, nice revolution, and. Right. Uh, Unlike those bloody, nasty French or the <laughs> Haitians or the people right. they've messed up, you right. know. But in fact, the rev all revolutions, including ours, uh, require a coercion, a force, mm. violence, um, betrayal. Uh, yeah. uh, it's astonishing. There's still there's still such a strong hold of, on the field of this idea that not only I mean the ideological strain is one thing, but this even that you can just call it a constitutional crisis essentially. It's just sort of, that's you it. know, a yeah. constitutional story, and that's all you need. That still is out there, you know, as right. well. So, um, yeah. so, um, so I, I, I showed uh, in uh, what seemed to me self-evident, but unfortunately hasn't been to others, hmm. that most many stories of the revolution start um, with the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, the, the, the founding fathers gather in Philadelphia and. and uh, uh, say goodbye to England, but of course that makes no sense at all. There had to be uh, a, a lot of groundwork uh, with with ordinary people to prepare. Uh, otherwise, it would have been a, just a useless kind of a little conference. Uh, and it's sure enough, as I showed, not only in Boston and New England, but all over the country, there was a uh, an infrastructure of of protest and new people. We're coming to the fore in their communities, uh, people who had never had 
political office before for the most part. The, uh, they weren't rabid revolutionaries, they weren't necessarily ideologues, but they were taking control in a vacuum that was left by the, uh, the retreat of Brit British uh, officials. And I think it's a tremendous story for me because the, the, the revolutionary moment and probably the, the key year was um, uh, 1774 uh, mm. uh, because uh, by that time, by the end of 1774, there was a network of revolutionaries that were well aware of each other and communicating uh, not only directly but through the newspapers. And mm -hmm. what I discovered in it is that the newspapers were the key uh, vehicle yeah. for maintaining protests. And so uh, I, I took the story up to basically the Declaration of Independence. It's the, it's the uh, pre prelude, if you will, of, of revolution, yeah. although it may have been uh, central. So then, so then you want to come to Washington, George Washington, right. first president. I mean, so what? So why well, should people care about this story of his touring around the country? Right, uh, and I'm sure there there are a number of people who, uh, uh, some historians, even recently, people who've written uh, large biographies of Washington, uh, uh, really kind of a, a rest and recreation, getting away from Mount Vernon, probably seeing the country. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it was, uh, but I, I sensed it was more than that. It well, was, it was. Washington had a sense, as have people that we very, very seldom mention in the American conversation, um, uh, Gandhi, uh, Mandela, uh, of people who were revolutionary leaders, like Washington very much, uh, so maybe not in the battle, but certainly in the emotional side of uh, politics, mm. who sensed that after it seemed like the goals had been achieved, Indian independence, uh, the British, uh, or the, uh, the Afrikaners uh, gave up. Uh, it seemed like it was over, that the goal had been, but, but both men understood that uh, the revolution never is fulfilled unless the regime has genuine stability. Mm. Because most revolutions end, end very badly mm -hmm. in coups, mm -hmm. a series of new constitutions, instability that betrays the revolutionary uh, dream. Mm. Washington understood that as much as these other people. Mm. He, he knew the revolution was in peril during the 1780s. Uh, all the talk about fragmentation, the breakdown of leaving uh, the various states open to possible attack by mm. predatory imperial powers. Yeah. And so his journey was a journey, in my mind at least, uh, that was post-revolutionary. It was to fulfill the revolutionary goal, which was a united uh, republic, yeah. a, a strong central government that would hold the American people together with the possibility of uh, greater prosperity, greater security, and uh, as I also argue, a greater sense of protection mm. of, of rights. And, uh, because without a strong central government, rights are uh, a, a non-starter. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if a local community can kill a Catholic or a Jew or a black, then what do rights mean? Mm -hmm. They mean nothing. Mm -hmm. Washington understood the dynamics of localism and he, he actually hated uh, states and he hated local demagogues. Uh, and people today that look back to Washington or look back to the founding fathers for um, inspiration for their own, shall we say, states' rights agenda and whatnot, 
They can do that if they want. That's their their their, their privilege, but they can't not look to George Washington mm. for much. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, he, you the Washington you give us, I think, is unique. I mean, he his vision uh, is is capacious, and um, his political acumen is really uh, un, uh, surprising. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, talk a little bit about you know how you came to think about you know wh- how he came up with this idea of visiting the people. Right. I had come to writing this book with the I think what is this the standard view of um, Washington's first administration, and that was he was a little old, he was a little tired, he was certainly awkward and probably socially diffident, but he surrounded himself by a, such a terrific group of people. I mean, there's Madison writing the Bill of Rights and, and Jefferson thinking great Jeffersonian thoughts, which he <laughs> probably never acted on. Um, and uh, Hamilton, uh, no doubt, anticipating his hip-hop fame for his own. Uh, and Washington uh, is just present, a kind of a force. But what I discovered is he was of equal importance, that all of the other men's accomplishments would have meant nothing if the country was, in fact, uh, in the subject of fracture and whatnot. So uh, Washington sensed he had a t- tremendous, almost a, a political instinct that one associates maybe with the greatest presidents, uh, Lincoln perhaps, FDR, mm-hmm. who was just built into, hardwired, is he knew how to read the situation and how to react to mm-hmm. a problem. So he wrote very little of you know, great states documents. He was not a, a great uh, stylist, but he was a great actor of power. And he was a great, uh, had a great sense of the theater mm. of politics. Yeah. And so he came to the presidency wanting to uh, develop, if you will, a new script of power in which he would be the central character. And now it sounds arrogant, but it wasn't. He, he, he knew, as did Mandela and Gandhi and Cromwell and Napoleon, that he, he was the state. Mm. His, his mm-hmm. character was... He, he was the United yeah. States. However, reluctantly, he, he yeah. grasped that he was crucial. Right, right. And yeah. so uh, he sensed that um, a government by the people, for the people, uh, had to be accessible to the people, and that if he just stayed in the capital and sent letters uh, about under his name, it, it would lack the emotional. Um, force necessary. Well, we, what do we call this emotion? We might call it nationalism. We might call it patriotism. We might just call it national identity. But there's some deep sense when people say, I'm, I'm part of that group. I'm mm-hmm. part of this new United States of America, this yeah. republic. And so by going to the country, by going to the people, he helped cement these these ties, this, this very visibility at that moment. Yeah, you, you have, there's an excellent part of the book where you're looking at a correspondence between Washington and and David Stewart, I think, mm-hmm. in which uh, in which this this notion of the emotional judgment that people make of presidents mm-hmm. you know, or politicians in great circumstances is something that seems to be really aware. It's something they're really aware of, and something we we can still learn right. from. We think about. Yeah. That what he's saying is illogical, but people make emotional connections right. to people. That they love these people, right. they love these presidents, they love these great figures in ways that, uh, if you intellectualize it, it doesn't make a ton of sense right. all the time. Um, he felt 
very strongly that he had uh, a vision for the for the welfare of the country. Um, whether he was right or wrong, he, he had a very very strong dream of a of a strong country that would be more prosperous and safer and uh, and. Uh, but he felt, as president, and this is an old story, but a continuing one, that the problem was the distance, the communicative distance between the president and the people. Mm. So who got in the way? What were what were the obstructions? And one obstruction were uh, what he called local demagogues. Mm. Uh, by that he meant people like Patrick Henry or John Hancock, who had built up a large constituency of following in their states who did not have a large vision but had a local vision and they uh, tended to disseminate uh, falsehoods about what was going yeah. on you know the people up at the capital are no good scoundrels but we locals know what's good for us yeah. washington said no come on listen, listen get listen to what we're talking about yeah. and then the other enemy was a sensationalist press mm -hmm. well a, a press that uh, uh, like to tell stories about Washington's uh, uh, inappropriate bowing, his, his uh, wretched uh, assemblies where mm -hmm. he would uh, meet people. And uh, so the trip was, in a sense, to, to leapfrog over mm -hmm. these demagogues and the falsehoods of the press and say, look, here I am. Mm -hmm. You want to want talk to me? See yeah. me in a parade. I'm, I'm here. He's the first president who's taking it to the people. Right? Yes, taking absolutely. it out there. Yeah. But he knew that that was absolutely essential to hold the country together, and I think he was right. But with a lot of a lot of historians, even and I think general public, they think about the first the, the country in the age of Washington's presidency, and there's a notion that it's a a political universe that's really just for elites. Mm -hmm. That isn't the world that you no, describe. No, I certainly not. But I think uh, you bring up a, a very good point, is I think most Americans, certainly legal historians and people that uh, uh, sit on the Supreme Court, uh, look at the Constitution as the founding moment and then we rise steadily to our intended providential greatness as a, as a, as a, a nation. So the story of the country begins with the ratification. But that was not Washington's perspective. Mm. He saw this moment as the fulfillment of the revolution. He was looking at the, at the original goals uh, of, of, of all the mm. sacrifice during those eight years of war and telling America, don't let it slip away. Mm. You have the greatest chance of any people in the history of the world, and it's, it's for yours to grab. Mm. What, one of the, in reading the book, it reminded me of some of the marketplace in the sense that you're talking about a popular consumption of a political office in mm -hmm. a way, or the way the way you're seeing the whole community drawn into the pageantry of Washington, right. uh, and his realization of that is he's sort of selling something, Absolutely. and people yeah. are buying. You know, mm -hmm. it struck me that, that some of the the talents you brought to bear in marketplace come out in. Yes, this I story. think there's there's a similarity. Yeah. But I would say, as a historian who has fought uh, against, I suppose, the dominant um, intellectual interpretation of revolution, again, which is no problem, it's just that the, if you want to stage revolution, you've got to have a whole lot more than just a bundle yeah. of people. Uh, well, I do. You need people, you need people who are angry, who will sacrifice. And, uh, so I've written four books. All of them have done fairly well as academic books, none of them are bestsellers. 
Uh, some of them are adopted in graduate schools, so graduate students. Many have, of them. Have many of them. To read them. This is the this is the humble TH Breen here. Right, and many of these books are must-read books, and and, and, yeah. and they've had the right papers. <laughs> yeah. And I would say that when you begin to go back, however, to the dominant to the to the continuing flood mm -hmm. of books about the revolutionary period, I've made absolutely no impact. No, 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 no. I have among some scholars, but by and large, mm. it's still the story of a club of great men doing great things for the people, mm. and the people inevitably are reduced to spectators on their own revolution. Mm. And so we talk about insurgency. Ooh, that's a <laughs> that's a little uh, harsh, isn't it? Are you going to make them sound like Iranians for yeah, God's sake? Loaded word. Yeah, yeah, that's not. It's like. Well, when one, my friend Ken Lockridge called the women farmers peasants, he said, oh, oh, no, no, that's Serbia, but not, not Massachusetts. <laughs> so that we have, a, we have a vocabulary we won't accept, but mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the elements that is so hard for the people to accept mm -hmm. is that the revolution was about them, mm -hmm. about ordinary folks mm -hmm. taking their political futures into their own, own hands. I don't know why this is such a, 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 a such a low receptivity. Mm. Maybe people see uh, uh, mass movements as threatening. Mm. Maybe they see it as uh, you know leading to uh, you know violence in the streets or something. And maybe we 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 don't want to talk about that so much. Mm. Uh, I I really don't know. Yeah. Except I I go to conferences and I'll tell. Um, uh, audiences about uh, Washington or the insurgents or about the boycotts and they listen and they applaud and then it's question time and they'll say well well, tell me did Adams like Jefferson <laughs> and you realize you're, you're, we're back in the old narrative yeah but it struck me that um, your, bo your book actually says quite a bit about leadership and the way to bridge mm -hmm. that gap maybe between elites doing this over right. here and the people watching over there and in right. fact it's this yeah. Well, well they, you know, it's, it's about followers and about right. context and about right. understanding the moment. And you know, Washington succeeded because of the people and their yeah. involvement, not in spite of it. No, no, right. I, I agree. And you're, yeah. you're a good and generous uh, reader. But we'll see. Um, I mean, the marketplace for me now is <laughs> the adoption, the sale, the reviews of this book. Yeah. There are no, at the time we're speaking, um, major reviews out. There's a few you know, the, the choice and the kind of things like that, but there's no major reviews. And we'll see um, uh, how, how it is um, mm -hmm. um, uh, interpreted. Where it fits. But, yeah. uh, but uh, if it's perceived as uh, another Washington book, I, I, I will have missed, uh, mm. they will have missed the, my, my point that yeah. I'm trying to make, and when an author says that they missed the point, he can only blame himself. <laughs> Because he didn't communicate it strong uh, enough. <clears throat> well, I mean, it, I, I think it's, I think it, it's it's an extraordinary book in bridging, like I say, in bridging that gap and bringing the society and the culture of the people to bear. You bring out stories that aren't known, not only about Washington but many figures. Yeah. You know, in his in his trips, there's a few of them. You might want to share one of the anecdotes that uh, yeah. of, of the journey that you discovered and and think. Tell us a little bit about that moment. Well, uh, in a lecture that I may, may give soon. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I introduce a cast of characters uh, that Washington met 
And so the lecture is not about Washington, but mm. on the road with Washington. Mm. And uh, he met uh, a number of just absolutely uh, fascinating Americans who were struggling to figure out what it meant to live in a republic. This is a, this is a this is a revolutionary society. They had just gotten rid of a monarchical order. They no more aristocrats, no more bowing and scraping because you were born to a certain family. You made it in America, or you didn't make it, but it was up to you uh, in the society to carve out your place. We know that the rich have always had more power than the poor, but there was at that time a sense of open out the possibilities uh, of at least white white families um, the, the blacks of course were not yet included in the conversation but uh, uh, I have two f two favorite stories mm. um, one is uh, about a, a young woman who was probably in her mid-teens and lived uh, uh, in North Carolina south of uh, Salisbury and her name was uh, Betsy Brandon and Betsy uh, uh, was lived on a farm, and Washington was coming up from uh, Charlotte uh, towards uh, uh, Salisbury, and then eventually Winston Salem. That's me. Uh, 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 um, and uh, so uh, he would needed a drink of water, and he knocked on uh, young Betsy's. Door at that door, she came on. She was a younger, but she was in a really sour mood. Here's this stranger <laughs> demanding water, and she said, "He said, well, look, what's uh, what's your problem, young lady?" And she said, "Well, my family has all gone up to Salisbury to see the president, and they left me here to watch the farm and keep the animals. And I really, that's just not right. I really wanted to see the president." <laughs> and he was in a remarkable moment in the nowhere in North Carolina of his finest acting of persuading her that he was the president of the United States. That's extraordinary. That's, that's, that's extraordinary. I, that, that story, it, it speaks to so many, in, in so many ways, uh, the country is the same but so different, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the, the way you could, the communication and travel yeah. and images and that sort of thing. But One other story that amazed me as a historian, it, it amazed me so much that four times I went back to the original letter, the original document, because I persuaded myself that in my eagerness to use this material, I, I surely projected. Mm. I, I misread it. I must some dys dyslexic mm. a tool, a cassette in. So I went. But it occurred in Salem, <clears throat> Massachusetts in the year 1789. And a young woman, I, again, probably a little older than Betsy, but I'd say a late teen, a, a, a mm. single woman, uh, we don't know her our full full uh, full name, um, but she uh, well, after Washington had come to Salem, she wrote a long letter to her brother, and this letter had survived the body of the letter. And she said, "Well, you know, she 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 had not actually been invited to the reception, but a lot of her uh, lady friends had, and they and and the, after the party, uh, she and Terry were, what was he like? Did he look? Was he really cool? I mean, what was he wearing?" And they had, uh, you know, they were very excited. He was sort of almost a rock star in their, their midst. And uh, she said, well, in this life, she said, some people are talking to him about like he's a god, like he's an angel. And she said, you know, he isn't. He, he isn't an angel. He's a man just like uh, you, you are. Because if he was an angel, he wouldn't bother with ordinary people like me. Mm -hmm. But he's here. 
And she said, it was really a great moment. There's only one thing, she says in this letter, that would have made the whole event better, and that was if George Washington were a woman. When I read this, I said, she can't write this in 1789. You know, the idea that this young girl would imagine the President of the United States is a woman? Mm. And but that's, that, was, that was her reaction to the grand tour. Well, that's an extraordinary story. And uh, the book has many of them, uh, most unfamiliar, I would think, to the general reading public uh, for, for certain. Now, part of the way you research this book, from what I understand, is from traveling the, traveling the road. Absolutely. And I reconstructed it. To see where he'd road. been. Yeah, so you reconstructed it. So how, how, how is it? How's the road holding up? The, you know, well, I tell years? you, uh, <laughs> the road that Washington took was, was wretched. And, and my <laughs> sense of his own sacrifice and dedication to the cause really went up. I don't know how the hell he did, especially the roads in the south which were uh, mm -hmm. uh, deep sand, and it was really tough to pull a coach, a heavy coach, uh, through it. Uh, in 2,000 miles of travel through the South, he never lost a single horse, which mm -hmm. he's very proud of. But he, he, so, yeah. yeah, the roads have changed. They're, they're paved <laughs> and whatnot. But uh, what I discovered, and if I was a historical archaeologist, uh, I didn't mention this in the book, but I, what I found is um, what passes as Washington's world, the surviving um, structures, taverns, houses where he stayed, often when you begin to poke around, it turns out they've moved once, sometimes twice, three mm -hmm. times mm -hmm. as development. They said, well, that's the, that's a Washington house, but it's going to be a supermarket. Let's move it down the street, and yeah. or let's move it to a little compound of historic buildings. And so what I thought was the site of his moment in these towns mm. was in fact uh, a, a very fluid mm. kind of, of history. And other people have noted this, that what we think of is of the past is in fact uh, an unstable world. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but th I, you did tell the story, I think you told the story of, uh, I know you told the story of visiting uh, Hampton House in uh, in yes, uh, South yes. Carolina. Yes, um, this is one of my favorites. I, I was very fortunate to spend many years at the beach at Pauley's Island, which is nor uh, a little north, north of, far, yeah. a little north of Georgetown there, and uh, hot, very hot. But uh, you tell you tell that story of visiting that that place. I guess it's the Horry House or the Pickering. Well, the the Pickneys and the the Pickneys, yeah. And uh, they they had this um, uh, just north of uh, Georgetown. Yeah, uh, yeah. A tremendous uh, rice plantation. Rice plantations, unlike the and there's tobacco. a stretch of the National Road that's still there. Right. You probably right. Went down I think there. it's, it's route, amazing. I think it's Route 17. Yeah. 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 But anyway, the the, the plantation uh, is uh, a few miles, maybe five miles, off mm -hmm. the main road, and because rice plantations were extremely isolated because they were so huge, and you had to have. Uh, the ponds and dikes and drainage mm. and it believe me for the black people that worked there it was it was horrible but anyway the Horries and the Pickneys made it uh, you know life there and uh, they were uh, very revered in South Carolina society when Washington came up to visit uh, Mrs. Horry because uh, her husband had been killed in the revolution she was a widow uh, and he wanted to pay his respects and also he was bored out of his mind at that point and um, so they had a little reception and a little probably tea and uh, to make co a conversation. 
she pointed out to this live oak tree in front of the house, right in the middle of the front of the porch, uh, that was then probably about 200 years old. And she said, you know, uh, I, I got to apologize. We got to cut this tree down because, you know, when you come up to the house, the tree blocks the house. Mm -hmm. You know, you're supposed to have a proper entry. I mean, mm -hmm. the house is supposed to be majestic and welcoming and whatnot. And he looked at her and he looked at the tree and he said, um, Mrs. Zoe, don't cut that tree down. That's that's really a grand tour tree. Mm -hmm. And so she didn't. And the, the tree's still there. It's now 500 years old. Amazing. And it's called the Washington Oak. Mm -hmm. And um, I know it sounds kind of romantic and trickly, but I really went up and I hugged that damn tree. <laughs> yeah. I, it was a living yeah. testimony to the man I was writing about. Yeah, I mean, I think here at Mount Vernon, it is, uh, it's always... Uh, moving to get on the estate and be you know where Washington was in the context of trying to recreate and understand that world of course one of the aspects of that world that is very hard to understand is slavery and you deal well I think uh, in bringing in bringing this story in and how um, well I mean it, it, you talk about I think the, the term you use is the slave that made Washington tell a lie yes I yeah, wanted to share a little bit of how you right. how you decided to mm -hmm. figure out how to get the problem of slavery into the book that was uh, a in a way that made sense very very hard um, yeah. element of my narrative because it's uh, it's 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 not a story that flatters Washington at all in fact it makes him look quite narrow and uh, um, unattractive and I thought actually of of uh, suborning the story uh, mm. in order to give a certain uh, uplifting quality. And a historian that you know <clears throat> that I was then working with, Alan Taylor, mm. said, no, you you got to include, this is part of Washington's world, mm. whether you know you like it or not, or whether the readers like it or not. So I did include him. He, Alan was absolutely right. Um, um, so um, uh, there you go. So um, the story is that mm, when Washington moved to Philadelphia, which was then the capital, uh, he took a number of slaves, including a much valued slave that's only known as Hercules, mm -hmm. and he was a master chef. I mean, he could cook a dinner that you wouldn't believe in 10 minutes, and, and everybody loved Hercules, and he got a little money on the side, and he was kind of a dandy in town. People said, oh, there goes Hercules. He's, he's a really a wonderful guy. And, uh, but the Attorney General of the United States, uh, also from Virginia, discovered that a, Virgi a Pennsylvania law automatically freed slaves brought into the state of Pennsylvania after six months. Mm. And the only way to keep them as a slave was to maybe in five months and 29 days to take them out of the state and then the six mm -hmm. months would start again and yeah, restart the clock yeah, yeah. so yeah. so Washington heard about it and, and Martha Martha especially she panicked she said oh this is terrible we're gonna lose, lose our, our, our service mm -hmm. and so they hatched a little plan that uh, they would figure out a way to get their slaves in Hercules they would to persuade Hercules that Washington was coming back from the tour and that they needed to needed him down in Mount Vernon to get the house ready, cook some meals for mm -hmm. the returning president, mm -hmm. just at the, like the end of six months. Yeah. But Hercules was really smart and no doubt heard table talk and was on top of the whole thing. And so he just threw him down. He said to, to Martha and Martha, he said, how dare you not trust me? 
I'm a loyal slave. I've given my life to you. And now, mm. now, just because you think freedom beckons, you think I'm going to desert, you should be ashamed of yourselves. <laughs> and Martha forgave him. She, she said, oh my God, this guy's so sincere and whatnot and whatnot. So, um, they, so he, he forced Washington to develop this conspiracy to tell, tell a lie and, and mm. outed him. But there's some wonderful coda to this story. Mm. When Washington stopped being president, in 1796, Hercules did take off. Mm -hmm. he, That's right. he wasn't going back. Yeah. And some French visitors, there's always Frenchmen poking around uh, Mount Vernon, mm. uh, found a young little girl. They talked to a little girl and they said, and she said, well, they, they found out that she was Hercules' daughter. And they said, well, little lady, doesn't, doesn't it make you very sad that your papa's away, that you don't have a father, that he's a free man? And she looked at these Frenchmen like they didn't know what was up, and she said, "No, sir, my father is free now." Mm. Yeah, that's a, it. Is a great story. Uh, Hercules, an incredible figure. And I think that in the context of as his role in the president's house in Philadelphia, mm. a, a cook is. Uh, I mean, he's he's a, he's the master in the kitchen. He's running the whole oh, kitchen right. in, a, in a grand fashion but yeah it's it's great that you could include the story in there yeah it was uh, hercules uh, is a very very strong figure and i'm told that there's been a little a controversy this last week about a, a children's book that had to be pulled out of the schools because um the, the involving the same characters we just talked about but making slavery at mount vernon just look like uh, you know club med and yeah. you know, happy happy servants and yeah. whatnot yeah the but sort the, of happy slaves yeah you know, but the, the 1950s true, style right yeah. but the true story of course was that Her Her hercules and all the slaves in mount vernon and all the slaves in monticello and i mean there wasn't a day that these people went to they didn't think about being free mm. and for historians as some historians have said even raising the question about slavery in this world is inappropriate because it was a different mindset and so we shouldn't uh, we, we shouldn't ever condemn these people for having slaves yeah and that's wrong they knew they knew everyone knew you there's a lot of documentation Washington and his friends they knew it was a bad mm -hmm. deal the slaves wanted freedom they just didn't have the moral strength to act. And in Washington's case, he was so fearful that South Carolina and Georgia would leave the Union mm. if he acted. He made a priority. He said, uh, as Lincoln did at some time, mm. that saving the Union is more important than mm. freeing the blacks. But that doesn't mean slavery is a good institution. How was Washington uh, able, as a Virginian, to be so appealing to New Englanders and to people from all over the place mm -hmm. in a way that very few other figures could? Uh, you know, Jefferson was always mm -hmm. a Virginian, and mm -hmm. you know, and, and everybody knew Washington was a Virginian. But there was something about him that uh, he was able to bridge those gaps and bring people together. Well, I suspect anybody that has maybe been in the army or what that there was there, there was a, 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 a he had a bearing he had a he was a tall very athletic figure people don't realize how that he was one of the best equestrians in America so he was tall athletic and he kept his own counsel he did not run his mouth like general uh, lee did in the, the lee of the revolution and, and, and gates and whatnot mm -hmm. And at the end of the war, 
when he resigned his commission, uh, I mean, grown men, battle-hardened guys, they were in utter tears. They, the the ability of this guy to to mold personal loyalty mm. is unbelievable. Mm. Uh, it's harder for a historian to capture that, yeah. and yeah. I think modern people are skeptical. It comes off so saccharine, you know, yeah. in writing that up. Yeah. You know, how how do you do it? Yeah. But I, I mean, I think you yeah. succeed in many ways in doing it. Yeah, it's a challenge. Right? Yeah, he, he. I mean, whatever his leadership, mm. uh, I sometimes wonder, you know, if we have much of it around anymore. But whatever it is, he had he had buckets of it, mm. uh, as did all, our greatest presidents. Yeah. What separates the great presidents from the others is the ability to communicate a positive. Emphasize a positive vision of what this country can be. Mm -hmm. We can overcome the depression. We can win the civil war. Mm -hmm. We can sustain the revolution. Mm -hmm. It's a positive vision. Too many leaders take the negative road. Oh, we're going to hell. We're about to be attacked. We're a racist, sexist country. Mm -hmm. Blah blah blah. And that may win votes, but that is not great leadership. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to end this conversation. <laughs> I think. Uh, I, um, I, I get struck. I get struck in reading the book that you you developed a, an affinity with Washington. I did. I, I, I you spent I, a lot of time. You got Alita Radovis. You know, you and I know you write these books. You read a lot of stuff that never make it into the book. You're right. reading. You're reading and reading. You're reading all his letters in this mm -hmm. whole period. You're reading his diaries. Mm -hmm. and the, God knows how many secondary mm -hmm. works as well. And so you're spending a lot of time yeah. with this guy, and yeah. uh, you, you seem to have a. No, yeah, I got. I going. did feel, you know, yeah. and uh, something I, I I didn't write, but as you get to know a friend or somebody you work with really closely, and you respect him, I I kind of sensed his his feelings about things, mm -hmm. and one of the feelings he I, he clearly had is he really thought John Adams was a loser. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He yeah, tried to like this guy, but he was so pompous. Yeah. And, yeah. Adam's not going on him to, to the New England tour. I mean, it, yeah, it, it never really occurred. I mean, I've written about Adams and many thought about it. And that, until your book, it never really occurred to me what a blunder that what was. A, what just had a little snit. You know? And Abigail's telling you, you know, you should have done that. And, yeah, you know, right. she she was the politician of the family. Yeah. Anyway, so well, thank you for spending this it, time. This great. has uh, yeah. been great and. Uh, I encourage everybody not only to go by the book, but of course the talk that uh, that Professor Breen is going to give tonight to Mount Vernon will be available as well. So uh, uh, thank you very much. We'll talk again soon. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.